at that point, the kings have kind of come to an end. And before we launch into a new king, we're told about Jehoram becoming king. But remember, at the end of every king, we're told, and this king lives for so many years, and he died, and then he was succeeded by his whatever. But then the next paragraph says, and that king became king, da-da-da-da-da-da. that doesn't happen. The minute a king dies, we're told who he's succeeded by, and then the very next paragraph tells us about that king now becoming king. And that's how it keeps going. But that doesn't happen now. Jehoram, or say Ahaziah dies. We're told that Jehoram is going to succeed him. But there is no introduction to Jehoram. The whole king narrative gets put on pause. And for the first time since Solomon's death, we're not immediately going into the next king. We're going into Elijah's death. And Elisha succeeding him. And the idea is that Elijah is going to pass away and Elisha is going to come into power after Elijah in between the reign of kings. Now, technically, that's not true. Technically, in real life, historically, it's not in between the reigns of kings. But in the narrative, it's in between kings. And the idea is that Elisha is coming into power between kings, which means there is no king who's over him. He, he's going to come into power between kings, and he's going to die between kings And the idea is that Elisha's ministry is completely outside the authority of kings. And he is separate from them. Now, that doesn't historically true, but narrative-wise, the narrator is making a point. Now, once again, remember, in real life, it doesn't matter whether he was born during kings or outside of kings. He's still above kings because he was chosen by Yahweh. But the narrator is just doing this in a literary way to communicate that idea in that point. So this is Elijah. Chapter 2, verse 1. Just before Yahweh took Elijah up into the heaven or the sky in a windstorm, Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. Now, this immediately throws people off because we're so used to reading the word heaven and we automatically assume our concept of heaven. But in the ancient world, in the Hebrew, this is most likely sky. So the word Shemayim is the Hebrew word for sky or heaven. It can be translated either way. Now, that shouldn't be confusing because English does this too. The word trunk can be the trunk of a tree, the trunk of a car, the trunk of an elephant, the trunk at the end of a bed. And it's all determined by context. And it's the same thing with the word shemayim. Shemayim can be the heavens where God dwells or the sky where the birds fly through the air. And even in our language, we use heavens to refer to the sky. When we say the heavens declare the glory of God, we're talking about the sky, the sun, the moon, stars, and our space. Remember, in the ancient world, they don't know anything about our space because they don't have telescopes or spaceships. So for them, outer space and the sky are exactly the same thing. So the heavens, where the gods move through the clouds, and the sky are the same thing for them. Not only that... They don't have a concept of heaven, of people going there, because people never go to heaven. In the ancient world, before Christ, nobody went to heaven, because the only way you can go to heaven is if you are without sin. Jesus made it very clear, only the righteous will enter the kingdom of God. And the only way we can be made righteous is through the blood of Jesus Christ, and that hasn't come yet. So they didn't think about people being in heaven. They didn't think about people going there. We were talking about this in Second, First Samuel um, where Eli- um, Saul conjures up Samuel, so to speak, and God allows it to happen, and Samuel says, why have you awakened me? 
So all throughout the Bible, most of the time the word Shemayim is used in the context of heaven. It's used, sorry. All throughout the First Testament, over and over and over again, predominantly the word Shemayim is used to communicate the idea of sky. Sky. So when your Bible is translated heaven, that's an interpretation. That's an interpretation. The question is, is that an accurate interpretation? And my argument would be no. And I would say over 90% of the time in the First Testament, the answer is no. It should be sky or heavens. And heavens, plural, referring to the sky. So that, will, but we'll come back to that. So it's going to take him up in a windstorm. Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgah. And Elijah told Elisha, stay here, for Yahweh has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as certainly as Yahweh lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Some members of the, prophet, the sons of prophet and Bethel came out to Elisha and said, Do you know today that Yahweh is going to take away your master from you? He answered, Yes, I know. Be quiet. So these guys come back, these crazy guys. Now this time, it's suspicious. They're coming out of Bethel. And remember, Bethel's where the golden calves are. And this makes you now think that these aren't good prophets. And we talked about the idea that sons of the prophet might be a mixture of good prophets and bad prophets. Just like in any church, you might have good people and bad people. And so um, in our church growing up, we actually had a cult leader who began to rise up in our church. Not as in the leadership role, but in the congregation tried to do things. So it was all mixed, the, the sheep and the wolves, so to speak, until he was dealt with. So it's kind of that mixture. And we know that this should cast a bad light on them because later when Elisha, well, after Elijah is taken away, Elisha is going to come back into the land and Elisha is going to refuse to go to Bethel because of the idolatry there. So that makes it clear that coming out of Bethel should put a bad mark on you. So these prophets are there, but yet they probably do have a respect for Elijah and Elisha because they've seen power demonstrated from them. And usually false prophets or false people have no problem mixing with everybody. They have no problem mixing with anybody. They, they're friends with everybody. It's usually the people who are righteous who are trying to make distinctions between the good people and bad people to associate with. So they have no problem commingling. Now, Elijah basically is answering yes. So somehow they know he's going to be taken away. We don't know why. We don't know how they know. But they know he's going to be taken away. So they tell him that. Now, he tells them, yes, I know, be quiet. Now, why is he telling it over and over? We're going to see two things that keep getting repeated. They're going to come to the city, and Elijah's going to say, stay here. And Elijah's going to be like, no, I want to go with you. So they go. They go to the next city. Stay here. Don't go any further. No, I want to go with you. And this keeps happening over and over. At the same time, the prophets are like, hey, do you know that your master's going to be taken away from you? Yes, I do. Be quiet. Hey, do you know that your master's going to be taken away from you? <laughs> yes, I do. Be quiet. And these two things are getting repeated over and over again. Now, with the prophets, the word to be quiet here is the Hebrew word chasaya. And chasaya can also be translated as be still or be inactive. And so there's a possibility that Elisha is not telling them to be quiet, but to be inactive, as in don't get involved. You're not welcome here. You have no role here. Go away. Go back to Bethel. Kind of an idea I don't want here. And the real question here is the authority. Who has authority? Knows that they don't address Elijah. Probably because maybe they fear him. There's been a whole lot of lightning falling out of the sky with Elijah. 
but they're going to Elisha because he hasn't really demonstrated his authority or power yet like Elijah has. So they feel a little bit braver to question him, but yet he's telling them, back off, man. (laughs) Don't want you here, really. And they don't seem to get the hint until they get to the Jordan River, and then they back off. At the same time, Elijah is telling Elisha to stay. Now, there are two possibilities of why. It could be he's testing him again. Like when he did the drive-by robing. He's testing him to see, if, like, are you committed? Okay, are you, are you the, the young Padawan Daniel's son who is going to stick with me no matter what? Even when everything says give up. I'm testing your patience, your endurance. It's a possibility. Or it could be he doesn't want him around. Because what's coming next, he may not be very proud of. He may not be very proud of it. But this thing keeps going. They're going to Gilgah, to Bethel, and then they're going to go to Jericho. These are the same cities that Joshua conquered. The first three cities that Joshua conquered. And there's going to be a direct connection here, because just like Joshua succeeds Moses, we're going to have Elisha succeeding Elijah, and there's going to be parallels here. And they're moving, notice it says that they're moving eastward. Now the first thing that lets you know that things are not right is they're moving eastward. And moving eastward is always a judgment of God casting you out of his presence, like the Garden of Eden, or it's you intentionally walking away from God, like Cain moving eastward and then moving eastward to build the Tower of Babel, and Lot moving eastward away from God to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. But we also saw Elijah moving eastward out of the promised land to go to Phoenicia. So the question is, in both cases, it was seen as bad. But Elijah was commanded by God to move eastward in order to illustrate the point that Israel had been walking away from God and out of the promised land. The question is, is God illustrating this point? Or is this a judgment from God on Elijah? And my argument would be, this is a judgment of God on Elijah. So the moving eastward here theme. Eventually, they will cross the Jordan River. And crossing the Jordan River automatically puts you outside the promised land. And nothing good happens outside the promised land. There are no blessings of God outside the promised land. And so now we're in the outside of God's land, outside of his blessings, outside of the covenant community when this actually begins to happen. So verse 6 Elijah said to him, Stay here, for Yahweh has sent me to the Jordan. But he replied, As certainly as Yahweh lives, and as you, as you live, I will not leave you. So they traveled together. The fifty members of the prophetic guild went and stood opposite them at a distance. This is where they begin to back off. While Elijah and Elisha stood by the Jordan, Elijah took his cloak, folded it up, and hit the water with it. The water divided, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. This picking the cloak up, he strikes the water. Now, if you're taking a cloak and you're swinging it to strike something, that momentum is going to elongate it and give it a staff-like look. And so there's an intentional image of Moses striking the Red Sea and parting. And now you have the, Red, the Jordan River parting, and they're going to cross. So you have the Red Sea parting and a crossing with Moses. Joshua parts the Jordan River and does a crossing. And now you have the same idea here. So this Moses-Joshua theme is being continued on. But notice it's the cloak that has the authority, just like the staff of Moses. In Exodus, God says, from this point on, that staff you carry is my staff. 
is the staff of Yahweh, and from it I will demonstrate my power and my authority. And so there's this idea that the cloak represents this. And this is the same cloak that he threw on Elisha to say, you are the prophet that succeeds me. And so this robe has a symbol of authority connected to it that it can actually part the Jordan River. And then they cross it, and they cross eastward out of the land. Verse 9, when they crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, what can I do for you before I am taken away from you? Elisha answered, may I receive a double portion of the prophetic spirit that energizes you? So for whatever reason, Elijah says, you have one last request. Anything I can help you with. And Elisha gets really bold here. He does something that has never, ever happened among prophets. He asks for a double portion. Does anybody remember way back in Genesis what that is communicating? Sonship, the firstborn title. When, he, when Abraham chose Isaac and Isaac chose, well, Isaac chose Esau and God said, no, 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 I want Jacob. And Jacob chose then Judah. The firstborn title carried two things with it, headship and a double land inheritance. He gave you authority and power and double land inheritance. Elisha's asking for a double portion of the Holy Spirit. Meaning I want twice the power and don't see this as a greedy sense. I think it's just the doing the will of God. And so he asked for a double portion, which basically he's asking, will you pick me to be your firstborn son? Adopt me and let me continue your name and your ministry. Every prophet has had their own distinct ministry and calling from God all throughout the Bible. It is not uncommon for us to see the sons of a king continue the ministry or the way that a king ruled, but we have not seen that with prophets. God does not do it based on biology. He does it based on calling. And so Elisha is asking for something that has never been done. I want to continue your name, your ministry, the things that you've done, and I want to do it to an even greater extent. I want to be further involved in the kingdom of God. Elijah then responds and says, what you have asked is a difficult request. If you see me taken from you, may it be so. But if you don't, it will not happen. So he puts a criteria on it like, this is really difficult. It's not difficult for God, it's difficult for him. And what he means is two things. First, every prophet that has been a prophet has to be called by God. Prophets are not allowed to be appointed by men. Even when we saw the Samuel as a prophet and he appointed his sons as judges, there is an idea that the people got afraid because the judges, his son, were going to succeed Samuel. But even then, Samuel wasn't appointing his sons as prophets to succeed him. He had appointed them as judges, not as prophets. So prophets are never, ever, ever picked by humans. Only God can call a prophet. So what Elijah is saying is this is incredibly difficult because I, I can't pick prophets. That's not my job criteria. I have no authority. The other thing that makes it incredibly difficult is that prophets have to be spiritually gifted by God to see the spiritual realm. And I really, really, truly believe this. I don't remember if I mentioned this in the comparative religions class, but there are people who are more gifted by God to be more connected and tuned with the spiritual realm than other people. 
Just like I, I really truly believe that some people are more athletic than others, some people are more musical than others, some are more emotionally in, um, intuitive to other people's feelings than others, some are more um, engineering, mathematical minded, and logical than others. There are people who are really truly more connected to the spiritual realm, and they can see and they can hear things. And it's usually why these people could become prophets. Or they can become mediums. And we talked about this in the occult. People do magic and they see spirits and demons and they talk to them. And I believe that a lot of these people are con artists, but there's a lot of them truly have a gifting. And in the hands of the world and falling away from God, they get messed up with the wrong spirits. But the difference between a medium and a prophet is just what spirit they're connected to. And I really firmly believe that. And so one of the reasons that these guys are called to be prophets is the same reason that you're going to hire a logical, mathematical, engineering, mining person to build cars and design houses and stuff. You don't hire an artist, okay? unless the artist is also multiply gifted. And you pick the right people for the right jobs. And God is picking these guys to be prophets because they're spiritually connected. They're just gifted with that sensitivity. And so what Elijah, Elijah is saying is, you have to be able to see the spiritual realm. You have to be able to be connected to it. And so this is the test. When I am taken away, if you actually see everything other than me that's happening, then that's God's calling you. And you've passed the test of seeing the spiritual realm, and because God has allowed you to see it, then he's calling you. And that's the criteria. You have to be called by God, and you have to be able to see the spiritual realm. If you can see it, then God has called you. And this is fitting, too, because later Elijah is going to say to the servant, hey, we're not alone. There's an entire angelic army around us. And he can see this. Now, that's pretty phenomenal. We just think of this like a brief moment. But this story and the next story does not imply that it's being turned on and off. There's almost a sense that he is seeing this on a regular basis, certain things that we only given insights a couple of times to. So this is the criteria that's placed on them. 